Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Susie Rack of The Guardian, Claire Rafferty of West Ham in England, and by Anna Kessel, co-founder of Women in Football. So, what's the state of play? The international break seems the perfect time to find out. England have games against Austria and Sweden over the next week. There's a World Cup on the horizon. Arsenal, well, they're setting the pace in the Super League. There's an air of optimism around the place. One question, though, really. Let's begin with this. Is the women's game maximising its opportunity, do you think, Susie? I think this season it's taken a huge step forward. The FA's restructure, making the top tier fully professional, the first fully professional league in the world, and the second tier semi-professional is undoubtedly a positive step. You've got, for the first time ever, the opportunity for girls to start playing when they're young and see a pathway all the way through to professional football. That's a big difference. I mean, uh, there's still a big way to go with the levels of wages and things like that, but I think that's a, a massively positive step. There's still huge potential for growth, though, particularly with England. I think they don't necessarily play at the biggest stadiums and make the most of the opportunities available. In hockey, they book up their games years in advance and sell them out years in advance. We don't see that in the women's football, and I think that's that's a mistake. And there's a few things like that that hold the game back, and I think it kind of is a little bit of a, a fear of failure that kind of holds it back from going very, very big. So that, I think that's the biggest, mm. the biggest issue. Organisationally, we're talking there, aren't mm. we, Susie? What about in a playing sense, Claire? You know, you joined Chelsea in 2007, yeah. so you've seen the game grow. Yeah, I mean, I saw a massive journey from Chelsea. I was there for 11 seasons, and I think the main catalyst to the change was the investment from the men's team into the women's team. Chelsea a winning club, and they wanted the women to be the same. At the time, I think we were finishing like bottom of the league. You know, we weren't very competitive. We, the team we trained twice a week. You know, it was nowhere near it is now. It's actually unrecognisable if you were to compare the two now. And I think we kind of followed stead from the likes of Man City and Arsenal, who were investing more money into the, into the women's teams. And that goes from paying players, you know, higher wages. Uh, more consistent training facilities and grounds and even down to giving them the, the up-to-date kit of that each season. Small details, but it makes, makes you feel like you're wanted and it makes it, you know, feel a lot more professional. 
Mm. And I'd say that that is the biggest catalyst of change. Because mm. you know, let's look at it also from a broader perspective, Anna. Mm. I was frankly amazed. I, I read a piece earlier today, a 13-year-old girl in, in Wales, basically being told she can't play football, has to be hockey or netball. Mm. Is that common? Yes, <laughs> it is common. I'm amazed that those kind of stories make national headlines because that is a pretty accurate reflection of a lot of schools, a lot of young people's experience. When I go out and about, meet parents, speak to young people, speak to schools, it's often the case that girls are not offered access to football at school and that school sport is gender segregated. So boys are doing football and rugby, girls are doing netball and hockey. And if you look across to the States, for example, they've had Title IX in place since the 1970s where every single child going through the education system has to be offered the same opportunities. We still don't have that here in 2018. So I think we need to start getting that direction from the Department of Education, from DCMS, saying, you know, you've got to tackle it in schools. You can have all the wildcat schemes you like, but if it's not taking place in schools every day of the week, we're not going to fix this problem. Mm. Do you see talent going to waste, Claire? Massively. I remember in school I actually wasn't allowed to play football. I had to either play hockey or netball. Um, and when I, on Saturday, my mum had to ring up the school and ask them if I was allowed to go and play for my local football team because I was meant to be playing hockey at the same time and it, it was a massive deal and I got a lot in trouble for it because, you know, I was doing something I wasn't <laughs> allowed to do. So, I mean, it's still there, it's still prevalent and that was a long time ago now as well. Mm. <laughs> mm. I, I, you know, forgive my ignorance on this, but do clubs now, are they making a special attempt to target sort of youth sections and, and try and build the game from the grass up, roots up? A lot of clubs do go into schools and run sessions. Actually, when I was a kid, Arsenal ladies used to come into my school and run mm. sessions. I had Faye White running my after-school football classes, which was <laughs> really great. And a lot of them go into schools and have school programmes, but um, it's not it's not comprehensive. It's in a few local schools nearby those those particular clubs. It's not widespread. It's hit and miss. So it's, it's not a, a very, very deep thing. Lewis have actually done a really good job. They mm. go into, they've got a programme going into, uh, I think they've got nine schools that they go into regularly um, in Lewis, which is obviously quite a small town. And they've got the smallest resources probably in the top two tiers. If they can do it, then any club can do it, but it's the focus. Mm. Uh, but, 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 but they are, Anna, you know, the Lewis example is, mm. you know, they cross-fertilise across both you know, men's and the, the women's game. There's equality of, of opportunity and reward in terms of the, you know, the wages. Mm. And crowds are up by five-fold. So is there a message, a broader message in that? There is, and I, I absolutely love what Lewis are doing. I think it's really bold. It's, it's a global first. But they are in quite a unique position. So their women's team are playing well-known brand teams like Man United or Tottenham, whereas the men's team are playing much lower down the league. As I understand it, the women's season ticket is actually cheaper than it is for the men's season ticket. So there's a lot of pluses for people to go and support the women's team, which wouldn't necessarily be the case at other clubs. Mm. You wrote recently, Susie, about crowds you know, down 11% in the early part of this season. The whole idea of almost like a lack of acceptance from the host club, you don't play at the host stadium. Are there things that could be done in that area by the host clubs to actually welcome the women's sections in? Yeah, I think there's a number of problems that come with um, playing so far away from the kind of traditional homelands of the teams that, uh, that are their parent teams. Obviously, the fan base have to travel with that if they want to kind of support both sides. Clashes mean that you have to give up your whole entire weekend to football if you want to watch the men's on Saturday, women's on Sunday. That's not very realistic. Often the grounds are 
for me, the biggest issue is that, uh, how accessible they are. They're really inaccessible, hard to get to. Man United's uh, playing in Lee. It doesn't have a train station, for example. It's not easy. They're still getting impressive turnouts. But they're a new side. How long that will last is, is another thing. I think crowd sizes are key to everything. And if you can unlock crowd sizes, that's going to unlock sponsorship. It's going to brush off the haters who say that there's no audience for women's football and is the catalyst for better wages and more investment if you've got more people coming through the door. The problem is uh, clubs aren't willing to kind of put their money where their mouth is in that respect. So I think they're, it's still very much treated as the little sister. I even think if clubs played their women's teams in the main stadium twice a season, if they committed to that, that would be a big, big, big change. Just opening the fan base to women's football and how, how successful it's being at the moment, the development that we've seen technically uh, and improvement um, in the quality of the football on the pitch um, w would be huge. Um, and I think you'd get more people wanting to go to those games. Mm. Plus, you'd have a bigger income from those two dates, for example. So I think that would be one thing that they could do. I think it's the key. It's the elephant in the room. If we don't crack attendances, we won't grow the game significantly. Mm, yeah, you play at West Ham's training ground, yeah. don't you? What's the atmosphere like in that? I was just I was listening to what Susie was saying. I was thinking about when you said about you know wanting to play at the men's ground. I'm not sure if I think that's a good as a player's perspective. Mm. I actually really don't like it because there's less atmosphere. Uh, at Rush Green at West Ham, because it's the training ground, we have that catchment area mm. of the West Ham fan base, which works really well. And, you know, it's small, the stand's small, but, you know... It's, it's atmospheric, yeah, then. Atmospheric. It's, it's close and it's tight, and it's and because we're a brand-new team, mm. I think that will only grow. As for Chelsea, when we played there, we obviously were playing at AFC Wimbledon ground in Kings Meadow, and I think people are either going to choose to come and watch women's football or they're not. So when, you, when you're saying about playing at the men's grounds, mm. I think the people who already want to come have come. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think that's from a player's perspective. I really did, didn't like playing at Stamford Bridge when we used to because it become like an away game for us because we never used playing there. We didn't get any advantage from it and it was just felt really unfamiliar and almost ticking the box. Well, was, was that a bit like sort of like youth like. football? <laughs> was that like sort of men's football, uh, youth football uh, at men's level where you've got maybe one part of one stand open, you know, three or four hundred people? Is, is that the type yeah, of thing Yeah, that's what it's like, you know, and it just felt like it's, it's a bit ghostly because it was only one small area open. You couldn't hear the fans. They were far away from us where normally you used to have them close. You can hear, you know, what people are saying almost. But, I mean, that's just my opinion. I think commercially, you probably see it in a different way. But as a player, I, I don't really like playing at the men's grounds. Yeah. What about the sort of broader picture, Anna? You look at, you know, I'll take rugby as an example, because I've seen that, where you know, the England women's team play mm. immediately after the men's team. Mm. And I find that was a bit of a, almost like a tokenistic experience. You know, a few hundred people you know, with their pints in their hand will be watching it. But it didn't seem almost like a gesture of acceptance as it should be, maybe. The whole double-headed debate is quite fraught. Yeah. <laughs> there are advantages. I remember when England first started playing at Twickenham after the men, they had about 14,000 staying on to watch it. Mm. When you consider that their normal crowd for an international would have been about 4,000, that's a big increase. But logistically, there's issues with, are you putting the information out to punters that there will be this women's game taking place? How long is the gap between the men's game and the women's game if it's two hours or more? Punters are not going to want to stick around for it. And, and you've also had vice versa, where the women's game has preceded the men's game, so we've seen that in cricket and in Australian sport as well. And there's obviously, with football, the debate about whether we could possibly have... We did it once before in the Olympics in the friendly. Did you? I think it, we were up north somewhere. We, had the, we played our Team GB game before yeah. the men's one. 
And what um, happened? I think there were people there, but it was because it was Team GB, it wasn't England. Yeah. So it was a different argument. They, they were drawn by the Olympic. It was experience. the Olympics. It's difficult because you never know, do you, like, why, why people came, but we saw increased crowds in mm. every single one of our Olympic Games because people came to watch Team GB and mm. the label of being women's football was, was removed and we were Team GB, mm. which the game benefited from massively, I think, and that was a big catalyst to the change we're at now. Did the, did the game, though, make the most... I mean, I'll go back to the first question there, Susie, guys. Did the game make the most of the opportunity provided by that Olympic wave, if you like? No, I don't think so, because we weren't expectant mm. of the mm. popularity. You know, we were just playing the game of football and, and we'd come off the back of a World Cup in Germany in 2011, gone straight into the Olympics. You know, Hope Power had taken over the Olympic role and almost an old-fashioned approach to it. It was football, it wasn't about what was going on and that was Hope's view, it was about playing the game. You know, she didn't really like that side of the, all mm. the commercial side, mm. which in hindsight is a massive shame because if we preempted the response, we could have really jumped on it and, and it, it would have been even bigger, but... Mm. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I think yeah. the same mistake was made with the 2015 World Cup as well. I don't think yeah. people mm. predict that, it. The time, the FA well, say that they missed it. They the timings really of it, it. Were, yeah. were difficult for it. Mm. fans back home to yeah. watch the games. Even that's exactly. difficult. But, mm. but there were still massive, massive audiences yeah. as well, and they just didn't expect it. How, how well are the FA doing in marketing the Dionysus? There's some, been, been some brilliant things. Um, I thought the, the Channel 4 advert for the uh, Euros was brilliant. The social media side is very good. Um, I think they miss an opportunity to build momentum uh, in the run-up to internationals and friendlies. They're too last-minute. They're not necessarily in the most accessible stadiums. They've obviously got the restrictions of the international calendar and where, where they're given to play and the time frame they're given to play in. But... I think there's huge scope for getting schools and thousands and thousands of school kids and young people to England games, and I don't think that's necessarily taken advantage of. That said, crowd sizes have gone up. They are a lot better. The game at St Mary's, I thought, was um, against Wales, I thought was a massive uh, showpiece. There was over 20,000 there. And I think that shows that if you put it in a stadium that has really, really good accessibility, you can get close to filling it. You can make a big dent and kind of remove a bit of mm. that, like, mm. kind of rattling around feeling for the players as well. But I think a part of the problem with that is that it's about the will of the clubs and the FA to, to really push for a bigger turnout so that it doesn't feel mm. like you're playing to five people in the corner. Um, and that's the key to that, is how much they build for it. And I don't think they do enough, but they're doing better than they were. Mm. You look at other sports, Anna, you look at netball, mm. they've done a brilliant job of actually promoting that team, you know, world champions and everything else, or number one in the world. I suppose the harsh question is, do we trust the FA with the stewardship of the women's game. <laughs> I mean, people always say to me, wouldn't it be great if the Premier League supported women's football? Look what they could do for it. You know, you've got to give the FA the credit. It took them a long time to come on, on board supporting the women's game uh, after banning it for 50 years and then leaving it out in the wilderness until 93 and then continuing to underinvest. You know, the Super League only launched in 2011. Mm. Um, and so the speed and, and the progress that we've, we've made in the last eight years, I think, is really impressive. So hats off to them. Could we do better? Yes, because some of the basic things are still being missed off. You know, that Fulham game where the Lionesses were playing there, the lack of marketing around mm. that, the lack of 
information. That's a prime fixture that could easily attract a lot of people when we're looking at timing of fixtures. We want to attract a young audience, so let's not put it in an in inaccessible ground on a Sunday night in the evening. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get families turning up. There's a lot of these really basic issues that are still going all right, or even just for journalists, getting the information about who's mm -hmm. where in the table and what the stats are, and those basic things still need to be I had to have a real look to find that, that England were playing at Rotherham on Sunday. It's hard work, isn't it, when yes. you try and find, even when you're involved yeah. in it, it's, yeah. it shouldn't be that hard to no, find information. By the general organisation, you know, again, as a, a relative outsider in this one, I can probably say this, I could not get my head around the fact that you've got an 11-team Super League. What is that all about? Because simply you're going to have one team, by definition, who aren't going to play on a weekend. Yeah, and that's the situation Mad. we've got, and it is crazy. The FA could have made it work. They could have found a way to boost a team up from Tier 2, Man United being the obvious candidates as an already professional side to make it work. But they left the restructure extremely late. They left telling the teams where they were extremely late. You then had teams dropping out. So, you know, Doncaster Rovers said they couldn't afford to stay in the second tier and drops down. Sheffield FC said they couldn't afford to stay in the second tier after bidding for and winning a place in it and have dropped down. And so they were immediately left with these uneven leagues. You had Sunderland who didn't win a place back in the top tier, then dropped below into the third tier. And they left it so late to make the decision over what team was where. They then didn't really have time to rejig it and uh, adjust it. And fixtures were announced kind of mid-August for games starting in September, way after the men's. And uh, even then they were kind of, you didn't have venues confirmed for Liverpool Everton for, until the week before the first game of the season. So, yeah, you've got this absolutely ridiculous situation where on the first day of the season, not every team can play. And yeah. on the last day of the season, well, not every team we, can play. Mm. And we were a brand new team into the league. The first, yeah. the first yeah. weekend of the season, we weren't even playing. It was like, oh... <laughs> All that hype that the club were trying to include with the, with the league, and it, we, we weren't even playing. Was, we were just sitting there twiddling our thumbs on the Sunday. Obviously, Matt, we were Matt training. Was quite delightful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we needed an extra week. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Because Matt Beard, I felt really sorry for him because he obviously got given the West Ham job, but he didn't know we were going to be in the league until six, seven weeks before. You know, he's calling up players, called me up saying, you know, will you come and sign for me? Mm. We might be in the league. We might not. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go if you're not. So mm. it's difficult, and, he, and he's had to, you know pull a team together and, you know, luckily we did miss the first week, but it's difficult. Yeah. Was your experience quite typical in terms of, you know, having to make that decision on what you are going to do with your career very late? Well, I've not had to make it before because obviously at Chelsea for yeah. a long, long time. But, yeah, it was kind of quite... So other girls, but other girls were in the same situation. Yeah, I mean, whoever, whoever, you know, wanted to... Um, it was only West Ham who were getting our... West Ham and... I can't remember Brighton who else, Brighton. Well, so they were told really late on that they were going to be in the league, obviously after submitting their mm. um, application. But, you know, he was having to recruit players on the basis that he might, we might be in, in the top tier, mm. which you're attracting, no disrespect, a whole different calibre of players then. If you're going for a tier two team, then, you know, mm. you're making different phone calls, so it's difficult. And you've got players in the tier two teams that have dropped down, yeah. who by that point, clubs have already sorted their yeah, rosters, exactly, yeah. have got their squads decided, and you've got these players who were semi-professional players now playing in amateur leagues. Mm and trying to find a way back into the top. So it's really not ideal that it was left so late. Mm, and then right. it, it's, it makes such a bad mm. impression in the media for the league. So you saw that story about Crystal Palace and that they sent out letters to their, some of the players, mainly reserve from the first team, saying you've got to fundraise £250 so that you can play. And then Wilfred 
Zaha came in and, and agreed to pay the gap. But then, of course, that brought more scrutiny because people were saying, well, why should Wilf, yeah. you know, be... It shouldn't have to happen. Yeah. But that was all a result of, yeah, them, of them getting a last-minute place because the other two teams had dropped down. Mm. So that, that lack of organisation and, to be fair, probably a little lack of commitment from the men's side of the club who could have put in a bit more cash to prevent that happening. It, yeah, and you know, I, I remember reading uh, stuff from you know, Kelly Simmons about almost her priorities to sort out commercial matters, marketing, you know, let's get some sponsors in. But there's a sense that, you know, you're putting the cart before the horse on that one, aren't you? Well, it's tricky, isn't it? We've constantly got this triangle of, is it sponsorship, is it media, is it attendances? And, and all three sort of feed into each other. And I can see why she wants to prioritise that, because this is the first time that we've really had investment in women's sport happening, and it's really exciting. Brands are starting to get involved, and I think it makes sense for her to want to push that and ride that wave. And you've seen it with media as well, the increase, the fact that Susie now writes a weekly column and goes to games. You've got The Telegraph just recruited their first ever full-time women's football reporter. Um, so things are changing massively but yeah you're right the attendance is the as Susie said at the elephant in the room that really needs to change what about standards let's you know you're at Manchester United the standard there the disparity that you spoke of if you extend that over the season they're going to walk the league are they potential champions for next season in the Super League I think they're going to have a hard time in the Super League. They're a very good team, but they're a very young team. And they've got a, um, a lot of young, quite inexperienced players. This is, To be fair to them, it's playing in the Championship for them is a very good thing. They're um, getting vital experience for those young players. And it's their first season in existence, being able to click as a team in a, a league that they're physically and tactically and technically superior in is beneficial for them. But next season, going into the Women's Super League is a whole kettle of fish. I don't think they'll be bottom, but I think when they come up against the likes of Man City and Arsenal, Birmingham, Chelsea... Um, West Ham. West Ham. <laughs> they're they're, they're going to struggle. They, they will struggle against the more experienced players when they're actually playing against people who are, who are also training week in, week out like they are. But you've had 11 years in the game. What would your best piece of advice be to a young player who thinks that she can make a career in the game? First and foremost, you have to be playing. So I think some of the young players who are who are very talented, you know, playing for youth England sides potentially may get drawn by the big lights of the mm. big clubs. But I think, you know, the most important thing is, is is getting minutes and developing their game experience, obviously training every day. Ultimately, I think enjoying it as well because there's a lot of pressure on the young girls now. I mean, I remember I used to play for fun and it was only until a couple of seasons ago when I was like told that I was a pro. <laughs> it wasn't really never a choice. It's just kind of I transitioned into it. Um, you know, we used to train twice a week and have a laugh on Sunday with my mates on, in the game. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, the investment's there, the standards are going up and that pressure, some people struggle with it, some people thrive in it. So it's about kind of developing maturity, you know, in the mindset and in technical skills. Because mm, I remember talking to Emma Hayes about it and she was saying a lot of the girls initially were pros in name only. In other words, they were paid for it, but they weren't really yeah. pro in attitude. Yeah. That's because we didn't have any kind of scrutiny. We, we trained twice a week. I think you can't expect that when you're not treated like a pro. Mm. I think that's as simple mm. as, you know, we, we weren't treated with respect, so kind of, you know, it was fun for mm. us and was never really on TV, no one was yeah. criticising the performances. Do we, do we need to create, Anna, a generation of role models? You know, I, I found it interesting looking at a piece with Leah Williamson where she was talking about how inspirational Jess Ennis was. Do we need to get the situation when a girl, maybe that 13-year-old girl in Wales, 
can look at a, a women's Super League team or a national team and choose a female footballer as her role model. Yeah, and I think we are getting there. You know, if I look back to when I first started writing about sport nearly 15 years ago, we would do, I don't know, maybe 300 words on the Women's Cup final, and that was seen as a, a really positive gesture. And the rest of the year, we'd pretty much ignore it, and people routinely, sorry to say this, but a lot of male colleagues would refer to women's football as monkey tennis. Seriously. Um, you know, that, the, the level of disrespect was un, untold. <laughs> and look at where we are now. You know, women's footballers are visible on the TV. They're in adverts. Leah Williamson's on the side of bus stops wearing Nike trainers. Mm. Um, so things are massively changing. But no, we haven't quite reached the Jess Ennis level of things. And also, when you look across the board, like we talked about earlier, access in schools, um, when, access to grounds. You know, how are these young people going to go and see? Mm their heroes, if you support Arsenal or if your family supports Arsenal, you've got to go 12 miles to Borehamwood. It's not on the tube, it's far away. And there's socioeconomic barriers to doing that for families. So there's a lot of barriers in the way to that happening still. What about coaching standards, Susie? You know, Joe Montemurro seems to have made a really big impact at Arsenal. What are the standards like? Are they improving? Yeah, I think there's some fantastic coaches, particularly in the top tier. I mean, Matt Beard coming back from the States, he won the league twice with Liverpool, broke Arsenal's kind of stranglehold dominance of uh, of the league title, and he's now at West Ham. You've got Joe coming over from Australia. He led uh, Melbourne City to an unbeaten season, the first ever in that league. And Melbourne City are the team that uh, was set up two years before that by the men's side of the club, which is part of the City group. So um, getting big investment like Man City women here. And obviously you've got Emma, Emma Hayes leading the way. I think it's good seeing some of the uh, the women coaches coming through now as well. Karen Hills at Tottenham is doing a fantastic job. So I think it's improving massively. There are some fantastic coaches in the women's game. And I think Joe's arrival was interesting because he's bounced between the men's and women's game. And he's very clear in saying that he doesn't see it as any difference when people ask him, oh, what made you come back to the women's game? He said, I didn't, it was just coaching football. It was Arsenal mm -hmm. coming to ask me to coach football at a club that I've loved the style of play of from when I was a kid. It was a no-brainer. I think that, that's more of the attitude that it's not necessarily seen as different. Phil Neville, obviously, coming in to coach the Lionesses, um, it, it's not necessarily seen as a different thing. He's very clear to say that, you know, I just want to coach football. I don't see a difference in it. Now, you, obviously, you played under Emma at, yeah. at Chelsea. Give me a, a, a sort of an overview of why she's such a good coach. She's ruthless. She's a winner. As you were saying about the coaches, they're under a lot of pressure now to mm. win, um, especially in the top clubs. And if they don't win, they're out the door. That then transpires down to the players. If you're not good enough, you're not going to play. Um, that's because they're under pressure to win. Emma's had a lot of background. She went to um, America for a bit, yeah. was at Arsenal mm. prior to that. And, um, yeah, she's, she's had many ups and downs and she's learned a lot from that. She loves the kind of psychological side of the game, really wants to try and get the best out of the players, but ultimately she's a very good coach. You know, she knows what she's talking about. You mm. know. Session I watched, it. she was very intense yeah. and very sort of meticulous. Yeah, she likes to be in the middle of the pitch. I remember there was a season after we won in 2015 where she stepped away from the pitch, just trying a like, different style of management. And I remember she hated it in the end and we weren't as successful because that kind of, she has an aura about her and she wasn't present on the pitch training pitch, so sometimes, you know, you'd be like, oh, Emma's not there, doesn't matter if I give her <laughs> Like Because, you know, ultimately she's the one who picks the team, so she's not, not yeah. seeing the bad habits that you pick up, but she has that kind of aura about her and, um, yeah, I mean, tactically very astute. 
Yeah, but she's also, you know, she talked to me about the need to almost like empower you as a player or yeah. players in terms of, OK, we're gonna, we've got a tactical game plan. Yeah. You've got to contribute to it. Yeah, we'd have, you know, weekly meetings before games and it'd be, you know, we're going to play this style. It was a question to us all the time, you know, in little, uh, unit groups. Do you think this is the best formation for this game? To And if you don't, why, why not? And and it would be like a group discussion, you know, should we change it, should we not? Because ultimately we're the ones out there doing it and if we don't feel comfortable with it, we're not going to do it well. Mm. The other thing that Emma made the point was, one, let's get away from the, like, knee-jerk comparison with the men's game, but she said, look, we actually play probably on a pitch which is actually too big for us. You know, should there be a bit more sort of leniency or leeway in those rules so that, you know, she made the point about the goalkeeper. Mm. You know, a goalkeeper on average is about four inches smaller than the, her male equivalent, yet the dimensions of the goal are the same. This is a really delicate area and for so long we've been pushing this message that football is football, you know, and, and managers say it all the time, Phil Neville says it, and to some extent it's true and we should just see it as another version of the sport, but there are some fundamental differences that we cannot get away from and we can actually make the women's game better by recognising them. So when you're looking at coaches, for example, you can go and coach in the women's game without knowing anything about female physiological needs. Mm. You don't need to know about the prevalence of ACL injuries. You don't need to know about hormonal patterns. None of these things. So you're going in effectively unqualified. Um, and I know it's something that football is looking at, trying to put these things into coaching licences. And it's really important to benefit the players and protect them. And it's a similar thing around the goal mouth and the size of the pitch. Let's not be afraid to make changes. It doesn't make the women's game a lesser game to make it more tailored to women's needs. I really agree with that. I, just, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult subject because we, yeah. we've, we've been fighting for so long for, you know, quality and mm. we're almost admitting a weakness by being mm. smaller it seems but I think that you know this is a, it's quite a broad statement but I think the female body is not made to cover that much distance in the mm. games and that's why you see more injuries more long-term injuries mm. um, I have this discussion a lot with some of the Chelsea girls we just always talk about the because Emma like likes that topic of conversation and the size of the goal you know the size mm. of the pitch can we cover the amount of distance if we're playing four at the back and five at the back I mean, research shows that we actually can't. Mm. So why are mm. we ignoring that? Mm. It's kind of basic facts. That it doesn't mean that we're not as good. It just means, you know, we're, genetically we're different and hormonal, mm. you know, so many different aspects that are just kind of get ignored, I think. Mm. When you think one of the biggest criticisms of the women's game is the goalkeeping. Yes. So how would the goalkeeping look if we change the size of the goal mouth? And also in terms of, you know, Emma made the point about in the men's game, you know, a goalkeeper hitting a 70-yard diagonal ball is, you know, a very good accepted tactic. That's just physically impossible mm. in the women's game. Well, this is it. I, I just think we need to be bolder and it's not a sign of weakness to change the game to suit women. Um, there's this kind of philosophy that football has to be, I think it comes from FIFA really, football has to be the same all over the world, has to be played on the same size pitches. Well, it's not. You know, you go to Barnet's pitch and it's like that. You go, you go to the old Highbury and it was narrower. So it's not exactly the same all around the world. And the sooner we just get a bit more real about it, I think the better. OK, well, you know, talking of, of, of FIFA, Susie, the England... Uh, two games this week. Should we be looking almost for the FA to indulge in a bit of succession planning? You know, Phil Neville logically will probably go up to the World Cup and then very likely leave the job. Are they grooming the right replacements? I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure he will go after the World Cup. Um, if he does a good job, 
I think he could well stay. But I think they are they are starting to look at the future. I mean, the fact that they got Casey Stoney in straight away as his mm. assistant, I think, was a, a good move. Obviously, she's now gone to Man United and is tied into a project there that she'll likely want to see run through to its conclusion. So I would say she was probably their favourite for the succession planning post-fill. But um, it's hard to say who's next in line. Personally, I'd like to see Laura Harvey, who coaches the Utah Royals in the States uh, and used to coach at Arsenal, come back. I know. I think she was. On, um, rumours are that she was on the shortlist for the uh, position before Phil Neville got it. She's a brilliant manager and I'd love to see her come back and coach. Um, I'd like to see uh, Emma Hayes coach the women's national team, but uh, she doesn't get along best with the <laughs> FA, so I'm not sure it's a job she'd necessarily want or they'd want her for. Um, but I think they should go for someone with a lot of experience in the women's game. Well, look at the, the competitive balance of the domestic game, if we could, Claire. Yesterday, Arsenal beating Birmingham 3-1, Jordan Nobbs scoring a couple of goals. You know, they've had a fantastic start to the season and there's a little look of dominance about them. What's the general standard like? Are we in a bit like the men's game where there's a, you know, the equivalent of a top six and then the rest make up the numbers almost? I think Arsenal have been building for a long time. This hasn't happened by accident. You know, they've had a few slower seasons and, you know, they're mm. hitting their high peak. And I think it comes, you know, in, it's very difficult to win back-to-back -back seasons. And that's why I think Chelsea have started slowly. But you see this, you know, you see dominance from Chelsea and then you'll see Arsenal this season, for example, then Man City. But I think it is consistently them three. And I think that comes down to money mm. and investment. And it's as simple as that. They've got a lot of experience. They've been building for a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. They're long-term projects. But there is kind of a gap, I think, between the top four. I'd say there's like a top four, a middle mm. vibe, and then the, the bottom who are fighting for the relegation. You see a lot of games, Susie. Do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think there's uh, re the recruitment is a big thing. I think it's it's often the team that's recruited best a couple of seasons before yeah. that is going to take the league. Ar Arsenal's recruitment last season was very good, and they took they took a bit of time to get going to gel. Joe brought in a few players in January after he'd taken the job. Almost the end of that season was kind of getting them ready for this season, and they've really hit the ground running. And I think squad size is another thing. That's the one yeah. thing that I think could trip Arsenal up. Is their squad is quite small. Um, they've already got Kim Little out. If Jordan Nobbs got injured, I, they'd really struggle. I think. I, I think any kind of big injuries, and they will have a little hiccup. I West Ham gave them the best game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good game, actually. It was. Um, I think the only way you can have a big squad though is if you have the money to, mm. to have mm. the players and them top three teams are fortunate to have that and mm. you know when you're playing going far in cups you get you know taking the mm. league to the last couple of weeks and you're in Champions League you need to be mm. able to rotate your teams and the top mm. ones can do that and still put out their best team on, on the following Sunday. Mm. So we go back to a basic problem do we here, Anna where let's be honest Manchester United had to be almost bullied into actually forming a, a women's <laughs> team, you know, because all the columnists were writing, look, you know, this is this is absurd. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to someone quite senior in the club two years ago, and his answer was, "We can't monetize it." Yeah, I mean, people forget that Man United did used to have a women's team mm. back in the day, in the same way that you know, and they had a great youth section as well. Indeed, and you know, there, there was a history there. Um, but too many of these clubs fold around the same time. It was when Charlton as well got relegated and they ditched the women's team to save 250 grand a year. 
I think now that they've come on board, it sent a real signal of intent, and hopefully it's going to prompt other clubs to take their teams more seriously. Mm. But I just wanted to go back to that point about succession, because I think that's really important in terms of managers. Mm. When we looked at that Phil Neville appointment and there was global criticism mm. about that appointment because they went through a whole recruitment process and threw everyone out, out the window and then called up Phil Neville. Mm. He's turned out to be... Who didn't meet the original criteria. Who didn't meet the yeah. original criteria, did not indicate an interest in the job. Um, and it also, even that secondary process was not transparent. You know, why didn't they call up Chrissy Powell before he'd signed for Southend? So that didn't meet the diversity mm. targets for the game itself. And if we don't plan carefully, if Phil Neville does leave after the next World Cup, who are we then going to go to? Look at Germany, one of the best teams in the world for decades, for 30 years. They've had assistant appointed to first manager. Assistant goes to first manager. We need to be doing that here. We need to think very carefully about how we're going to grow and particularly support female coaches in this game. Let's um, try and start to sort of draw things together. I'd like just to think on one thing that you would like to see happen to enhance the, the progress of the women's game. One of my pet hates, in a strange way, is the way that the men's game have this 3pm blackout and it's being now arbitrarily applied. They've got iFollow and clubs essentially can get around that system. Why don't we have a system where the women's Super League game of the week is played live three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, you then have a capacity to develop something around that which would then be able to promote the games on Sunday and people would know what's going on and when. And it really wouldn't affect a men's game, let's be honest with it. Do you think that might work? I think it's got potential, um, but I also I think we should be careful about having the women's game compete against the men's. For me, that's the big issue. Um, I think we, should, we, we need to try and get it to complement it. In Mexico, they've launched a, a new league and they've had record attendances, tens of thousands going to watch uh, their new professional women's league. I think it was over 30,000 and then over 50,000 at the final playoff for their league season broke league domestic records for women's football globally in their first season. And one of the things they did is they, they looked and they said, Monday night, we don't have any women's football, uh, any football at all, sorry, shown on TV or played. There, there was none. It was a completely free slot. They gave that to the women's game. It didn't clash with the men's at all. It didn't clash with games being played at grassroots, at senior side. It was um, it was a completely free, free slot. And they, they credit that as being a big reason why they've had such uh, explosive attendances. It's another thing to add to your week of football, not, not something that you have to choose between yeah so I think that's a big thing it's finding the way to to make the women's game complement the men's I don't think we should try and make them compete I think the switch from a summer season to a winter season was a mistake in that sense because uh, and I think that's why attendances have gone down um, because you've got clubs playing the same weekends and the same days and sometimes the same time as, as the men's side of their parent club and I think that's a mistake that's undoubtedly going to hit attendances uh, there there is an audience uh, in the men's game for women's football as well. And I don't think we should say, oh, we're trying to attract something new. I think we should look at both. So we want to bring both into women's game. Claire, as a player, what would you like to see happen? Um, I actually think that's quite a good idea, what you said, but you, you're talking about televising rather yeah. than... Mm. Yeah. So I think it's a good idea, you know, if you're going to be sitting at home on a Saturday afternoon watching football and that's your choice to do that rather than go to the game. But are you then taking away from people potentially going to the game if we're trying to focus on crowd numbers. But if you're going to create role models, you need to TV creates yeah. role models. Well, I, I think it's actually 
it's a good idea. And I mean, what's the reason why there's a blackout? Is, is that well, it's a it's an historic okay. rule that designed to protect football league clubs principally. Okay. You know, so there's no TV at three o'clock on yeah. a Saturday, so people will actually go to those games yeah. basically. But it's becoming a very very muddy yeah. area. With you, Anna, I would hope that this time next year, maybe even this time next week, we never come up against that story about the girl in Wales wanting to play football and be unable to do so. Societally, what would you like to see change? For me, one of the obvious fixes, and I know Claire's not a fan of this, but I would love to see women's football played in proper big stadiums. Mm. That tells women and young girls that this is a sport, that is a value, that we care about. We put it in the best stadiums. We don't put it in a stadium that's right out of town in a different blimmin' city. It gives the message straight away that this is something we take seriously. And it's really interesting. When you look at Arsenal, 10 years ago, I was writing about Arsenal playing at the Emirates. They only opened up 5,000 mm -hmm. tickets. They sold all 5,000. I remember Vic Acres saying at the time we could have sold at least 20. Mm -hmm. If you market it properly, if you put it in an attractive stadium that's within the local fan base anyway, people will come to it and then you won't have that situation of just a few hundred in the corner. Mm. Look at what they did with the Women's Cup final and, you know, 44,000 going to Wembley because they've marketed it properly. And then when it goes to Tranmere or wherever it is, no disrespect, but the numbers really fall. It was only five years before mm. that it was, at, I think, at Doncaster and they only had about 5,000 going to the Women's Cup final. So put it in the best stadiums, market it properly. You will get the role models and you get the visibility that comes with it. And just to go on to Susie's point about that change in season... I think it's unfortunate that they have been tinkering around with it. Usually I agree with everything that Susie says, but in this case, <laughs> I don't agree. I think it's right that women's football is played in the usual football calendar. I think it aligns it nicely with the European setup where you want, you know, when you're playing Champions League games, when you're playing international football, you need to have the women with proper match fitness and not having these kind of out disordered calendars. And it also fits really nicely with this new research that came out that Nielsen did that showed that media coverage of women's sport spikes massively in the summer and then dips by over 60% in the winter. Mm. And this is even across broadsheets. So if women's football can capitalise on that, and I, I think there's a lot more that they can do in terms of making the information more readily accessible to journalists, playing, it doesn't have to be every game, but a few games a season in a better accessible stadium, I think they can really monopolise on that. Well, the women's game has got a lot going for it, but it needs better leadership, better platform. Why not make a statement of intent? Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.